Well, good morning. Okay, we're going to try that one again. Good morning. So I, I don't mind some interaction. Um, let me just get this. So um, I'm, it is a privilege to be here. It was, uh, we in, had a good time yesterday. For those who were here, I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, but uh, basically, yes, I'm from New Jersey. I do, um, I, I do enjoy uh, as much as I can to evangelize. I say as much as I can because... I don't know about you, but it's something that makes me very nervous. Uh, I, get, I get a little bit fearful when doing it, but I, once I start, I usually enjoy it. <laughs> I usually have to get over my own fears. Um, I am with Striving for Eternity. We do have a, a book table in the back, and that's about all I'll say about that. You can look at it later. Um, but, you know, Pastor Aaron mentioned I'm from Chinese American Bible Church. I'm also from a Jewish background. So people usually ask, what in the world is a Jewish boy doing pastoring a Chinese church? My wife is from Hong Kong. That usually explains enough. <laughs> so what we're going to do today, uh, if you don't mind, well, I'm going to do it anyway, actually. But uh, we're going to look at the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and this is a, a very important topic when we go through Scripture, <clears throat> because, well, basically, according to Paul, our entire Christianity rests on this, whether Jesus Christ was God and rose from the dead. And in fact, as we just sung about, and sometimes we sing songs in church. I don't know about you, maybe it's just me. that We sometimes sing songs and don't actually think through the, the words that we're singing. But what reward do we have that Christ died for us? We, we benefit from what Christ did on that cross. An eternal God who died on, on our place. We deserve that death, all that sin that we sung about that was laid upon him on our behalf. So I want, to, I want us to go through a looking of different ways that we see the deity of Christ in the Gospels. If I'm going to would like to start with a word of prayer, so if you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you to open up your word, to understand it, and to worship you. Lord, we ask that as we look to your word, that you would change us. That even through this day that we spend, whether it be through the fellowship, through, through our giving, through the singing of, of praises to you, through the reading or proclamation of your word, that it would all be an act of worship. And it would all be something where we would gain a greater appreciation for you, a greater love for you, and a greater desire to be with you. So we ask, Lord, that at this time, that you might give me clarity of speech, that we would be able to see what your word reveals to us about yourself. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd encourage you to start. We're going to look at several passages, and what I want to do is actually I'm working through a book on the claims of the deity of Christ. And I'm going through the Gospels. And it might surprise some of you, Think in your own mind how many passages you think refer to Jesus Christ as God in the Gospels. If you're like me, when I started this study, I thought maybe there would be three or four hundred passages total. I came to discover that 48% of the Gospels refer to Jesus as God either directly or indirectly. We're going to take a look today at some of those indirect ways that Jesus Christ is referred to as God by looking at some of the minor titles that are given to him. 
We know of titles like I am. If you understand the theological background of that, you understand how rich that is, that that's a clear title of deity, that 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 alone is claiming to be God. But there's a lot of other titles that Jesus used for himself or others used of himself that show that it was clear that not only Jesus claimed he was God, but others made that claim. And we're going to look at today some interesting personalities that make that claim. What I'd like to do is start in Luke chapter 1. I know it's not Christmas time, and we're going to look at the passage of Scripture that most people only read during Christmas time, but the foretelling of the birth of Christ. If you look in Luke chapter 1, verse, I'm going to start reading in verse 26, because we see something here, and the first title, if you're taking notes that we're going to look at, is the title of the Son of the Most High. First, I want to see the, the, the prophecy of this, and then we want to look at the fulfillment. But Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. Now just stop there and think about that, by the way. This is, when you read scripture, please don't just read it, think through it. Put yourself in there. Wouldn't you be greatly afraid if an angel just suddenly appeared? <laughs> don't just read over these things. But So this an angel, verse 30, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, right within that passage, if you notice and don't read over, you're going to see something. The see the title, as I mentioned, the son of the most high. But what is this title connected to? You see, it's connected to that throne of David, being a child of David, the king that will follow after David, who have a kingdom that never ends. Is David dead? Yes, David's kingdom did not continue. His children continued it, and their children, and their children, and it had continued. But there was always this promise that was given to David that there would be one, an anointed one in English, Messiah in Hebrew, and Christ in Greek. This one who would come, who would have a kingdom that would never end, that ties this anointed one to being eternal. That's something only God is. That he would never have an ending to his kingdom. So right there we see that this has a a connection to this Messiah. The other thing is it's the son of the most high. Now I understand that in our English, in our generation, the idea of son of somebody doesn't make as much sense. This is actually one of the reasons if you ever had the knock on your door and those people with those little magazines come to your door and they would like to tell you about you know, they're, they're Jehovah and there are his witnesses. Have you ever, they don't come to my door 
it's really sad. I, I keep asking them. I actually call them. I'm a, I, I'm a little bit odd. You'll see I have a book on world religions. I actually call like the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and ask them to send people to my house, and they won't. Um, we've had Mormons that were sent home from missionaries from their two-year missions trip because they visited with, with us. Um, and so we, we're I, I, in a database that you're not supposed to talk to me. If you're of those, it's really sad. I, go to, I, w- I was in Utah, and I gave my name to someone. He was like, oh, no, I, I know of you. I'm like, I'm from Jersey. How? Like, that's bad. And so when you have them knock on your door, what they're going to argue is that Jesus said he was the what? Son of God. Not God, right? Well, son of is a, has more than just a meaning of offspring. And, and sometimes we do not think about this. Let me give you some examples. Do you remember who James and John were referred to? The sons of thunder. Yeah, I mean, who thinks that two lightning bolts got together and that roaring sound produced James and John? No, it was, it was Mary and Zebedee. We know their names. They were not lightning, you know. And so, so the idea here is that the idea is they had the, the characteristics, the essence of being loud and bolsterous. You see Barnabas. Well, actually, that's not his real name. Bar means son. So he's, he's the son of encouragement. It wasn't that encouragement gave birth to him. It's that he took on a new name when he became a Christian, that he was such an encourager that they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. In other words, he, he had the essence of encouragement. I would like to think that someday someone would think of that about me. Maybe you think that would be nice if someone was like, but you know, can you picture his personality? I mean, that, that people would name him as that he had the essence of encouragement. But think about this. What was the name that Jesus Christ used for himself more than any other? It wasn't Son of God. It's Son of Man. Which should cause you to think a bit, if you think about it. I mean, if you had to keep reminding people you were a human being, that you were the essence of a man, don't you think at some point you'd be asking, like, of course you're a man, who do you, else do you think you are? I mean, why do you have to keep reminding us you're human unless you think you're something other than human? And so when we see the term son of, it doesn't always mean offspring, but it can also mean in a Jewish culture the idea of an essence of or the characteristics of. So this is saying that Jesus Christ is claiming from this title, or at least this is what in this case right now the, the angel Gabriel is claiming, that he is the son or the essence of the most high God. And we don't have time today to look into all of the Old Testament to see how when we tie this to the Christ of the Old Testament, we see that this Christ, this anointed one who is promised to be the king of David, that would follow after David, was going to be God. We see this in Isaiah, that he would be called God. So we, when we look at that connection, we see that. But it's very interesting because if you turn to, uh, let's see, let's turn to Matthew chap- Mark chapter 5. This is also, you'll see this in Luke 8, but Matthew 5, uh, Mark 5, sorry, Mark 5 has, explains this. And it's very interesting because I want you to see who it is that refers to Jesus in this passage as the son of the most high. It's, it is a, a personalities that know God, unlike you and I. 
They're in his presence. It says this in Mark 5, starting in verse 1. Mark 5, 1 says, And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country, uh, the country of the Gennesarets. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one, uh, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he, he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what do you have to do with me jesus son of the most high god i endure you by god do not torment me for he was saying to him come out of this man you unclean spirit And so it's interesting when we look at the passage in Luke, what he's going to go on to say is that this angels or or demons have are many. Their name is Legion because they have many and they're begging him in Luke. He says uh, that uh, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And you see here in both the passages, they're going to these demons See him from afar off and come running to him. And they're begging him. Now, if he is a man, and I would like you to think about this and, and think through the scriptures. Do you know any time in the scriptures where demons are afraid of men? There aren't any. But in this case, you end up seeing in this event the angels, the demons and Demons are angels that have sinned, so they're still angels. But these, these demonic angels end up seeing Christ and recognizing him. How do you think they recognized him? Because they've been in his presence before. That's how they know who he is. This, again, when you, we sometimes read over these things and don't pick these little details up. You see, these these angels who were in the presence of God before Jesus came to earth as a man, they were able to recognize him because they've been with him. The demons would know who he is. If he was just a man, they would not refer to him with a title of deity, would they? They certainly wouldn't be afraid of him. And they certainly would not have to submit to his command. It's interesting because they're saying, are you here to torment us? They're very much afraid of this. And they know they have to obey what he commands, which we don't have time. But if you look at it, you'll see he ends up commanding them to to leave this person. This person who is so strong that no other human could hold this man down. Did Jesus force this man in any way to have to give up these demons? Did he hold them down? 
physically, where no man could hold this man down, where no chains can hold this man. And what did Jesus do? He just told the demons to leave. His voice was enough power. He just had to give the command. You and I don't command demons and they obey us like this. God does. You know, this isn't the only time. If you are in the book of Luke and look at Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we see another demon that has this and uses a different title of Jesus that shows his deity. He's called the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. It says in, in Luke 4, thir- verse 31, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, let me just stop there because, again, sometimes we don't want to misread or read over things. Because we don't always pick that up. You see, the rabbinical way of teaching is never to just state things. You could not do that. You must quote another rabbi. The rabbinical way of teaching is you have to quote several rabbis to make your point stronger. So one of the things when I was in Hebrew school growing up, we used to have to go to synagogue. And I always wondered why they always quoted all these other people. And it wasn't until actually I became a Christian and started studying Judaism from a Christian perspective that I learned about rabbinical law. There's actually a law that says that you are not to, to make an argument without quoting at least five other rabbis. And here is Jesus that just makes statements from his own authority. He doesn't need the authority of five other rabbis to make his point. He just states it. This is the rabbis who would be there. I mean, this would stand out. And they're they're amazed. They're astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogues, there was a man who had a spirit of of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. Verse 34. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the demon had thrown him down in their midst and came out of him, having done him no harm. So here you see demons, again, who know who Christ is. They recognize him, and they're afraid of what? That he is going to come and torture them. That they are, he's going to come and have authority over them. And they know who Christ is. Demons who are not afraid of men. When, when there was a case, as we see, where we see a demon... Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. But who who exactly do you think you are? They don't say that to Jesus, do they? No, when it's Jesus, they're afraid of torment. They're afraid of their punishment. They're afraid that, that Christ may be coming to punish them. So we see two titles so far used by demons. The reason I find it interesting is when people say that, that well, the disciples, they, they kind of, they, they didn't really believe that Jesus Christ was God. It kind of developed over time. And it was kind of a folklore that built up. So the early Christians really didn't believe he was God. But by the time of the book of John, that's when they really believed it. So they, they emphasized that. That's the way many will try to argue. In fact, I had one scholar, a liberal scholar from a university at Princeton, and he tried to argue that people never believed that Jesus Christ 
was the was God until at least the third century. The problem was we have books of the the book of John. We have copies that are in the early second century. That would be a problem since the book of John points to the deity of Christ so much. But you see, people think that this idea that Christ became God developed over time. You know one of the best ways to see if people claim that Jesus was God is don't look at the disciples, look at his enemies. Demons are not necessarily going to be friendly toward Christ. And yet, they make claims by giving him titles of deity. Interesting. We also see, if you look in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, uh, looking in verse 19. And we see, this is a testimony of John the Baptist. And we see a title that's going to be used here, calling him the prophet. And we're going to look at this because there's a difference between a prophet and the prophet. In verse 19, it says of John 1, And this is the testimony of John when he saw the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, he, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now, I want you to look at that because the question is, Who is the prophet? Where do we see this idea that there would be some special prophet? Now, notice the connection. The Christ. I already said, we go to the Old Testament, we see this anointed one who's going to be tied to to deity. Why would they ask about Elijah? Have any of you participated in a Passover Seder? Okay. One of the things you do at a Passover Seder toward the end is, if if it's a proper Passover Seder, because no offense, some Christians don't actually always do uh, a full... Seder. But at the end of the Seder, what you're going to do is during the Seder, the whole time, you are going to have a seat where no one's going to sit. You're going to have a cup of wine and a plate and everything set up. And toward the end of the Seder, you're going to walk to the door. The head of the household will walk to the door and open the door to await Elijah. Because Elijah will precede the coming one, the anointed one. And so part of the Seder is to, to be looking forward to when the Christ will come. And so you'd open the door. It's really funny once when my uncle decided to surprise my, my grandmother and didn't get the, he got the timing perfect, but no one knew it. He showed up at the door just as my father went to the door to open the door for Elijah, and there was my uncle. <laughs> it kind of shocked us all. I'm going, to, I'm going to open the door for Elijah. Uncle Alan, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he was sitting on the phone. It was, it was beautiful. Um, but, but the thing is that as we look at this, they're, they're curious who John the Baptist is. And they say, are you the prophet? Well, to them, that brings them right back to Deuteronomy 18. That's in one of those Old Testament books that you skip over. You know, Genesis, you know, Exodus, Le, Psalms. Um, and so if you looked at Deuteronomy 18, it says that God says in 1815, and the Lord will rise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is him, uh, it is him you shall listen. Just as you desire the Lord your God at Hebron on the day of the assembly, 
when you said, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to him, they are right in what they have spoken. I will rise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and I will speak to them all that I commanded him, and who and whoever will listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak the word in my name that I have not commanded. Uh, to, I lost my place, sorry. But to, to the prophet who presumes to speak a word of God that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, the same prophet shall die. If you say in your heart, how will we know that the Lord has spoken? When the prophet speaks in, his, in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come, to, come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. Now, this is a prophecy that was looking to a prophet that would come. Now, were there other prophets between Moses and Christ? Many. But nobody thought that that was this prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. This was a prophecy of a prophet that would come that would be different than any other prophet. And they made the connection between that and Christ. You see this again at the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, you see the feeding of the 5,000. And in verse 14, it says, And when the people saw the sign that was done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. So what, what are they saying? What are the Jewish people who just saw Jesus Christ feed 5,000 men plus women and children? And what is it they say about him? That he came into the world. Where was he then beforehand? Something to think about. But they're refer- because they know the prophet and they understand the connection in the Old Testament that this prophet is one that's tied to the Christ and is eternal. That's why they would say he comes into the world. Because they realize that when they're referring to, every time they refer to him as this prophet, they're referring it to him as being something other than just a prophet. He's not like Jeremiah. He's not like Elijah. He's not like Daniel. He's different. The context in which they use this shows this. In John chapter 7 and verse 40, it says, And when they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? You see, they had prejudice back then, too. You know, all the scholars around, no, he has to come from, you know, the, the rabbis. This guy's from Galilee. He would have to come from Bethlehem, the city of David. Well, they just didn't read the, you know, the genealogy well enough to realize he did come from Bethlehem. 
but but see you see they're they're referring to him as this this prophet. They have a a they're putting a connection again between the prophet and the Christ. One other verse that we see is Matthew twenty one verse eleven. Again, all the crowds and they're and they're saying the crowds say this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. So what we see here in each of these, you notice, though, there's a definite article. It's not a prophet, but the prophet. And so when you see that, you have to ask, well, this prophet must be different than the others. And when you go and you see that God said that there would be a prophet that he would rise up, that when God puts his words in that prophet's mouth, you must obey it. We actually see this elsewhere through the Gospels, that Christ will actually say, well, he'll set himself up as the very standard in which we are going to be judged by. If we don't believe in Christ, then we will be judged as guilty for crimes that we've done against God. He actually sets himself up as the standard. And you see, he speaks of an authority that's his own, and that shocked the people. Notice he's, he, he doesn't claim to have someone else's authority. If you, if, you're under, if you understand the idea of an ambassador, as an ambassador we speak on behalf of someone else. When we see Christ speak, he speaks on behalf of himself. When he commands a demon to leave someone, he doesn't say, you know, by Christ's name. Well, that wouldn't make sense. He doesn't say by the Father's name. Right? No. I mean, people today, you know, you end up seeing them say in Jesus' name, well, actually, many think that's a magical incantation that you're supposed to end your prayer with, and that makes everything good. Um, but, but the thing is that people think that, like, you know, if you say in Jesus' name, that somehow demons would have to obey you just by saying those magical words. If you don't believe me, you can, I, we have a video of me in New York City where I was, I was up on a, cor- on, a, on a box preaching the gospel. We had a, this guy that later told me he was demon-possessed. He actually said he had five demons. In him, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Muhammad, and Allah. It was an interesting combination. Um, but I think he just wanted to make sure he had everyone covered. And so, but the thing is, that, I mean, there's all these people that tell me that I should have just commanded the demon to leave him in Jesus' name. But see, when Jesus commands him, he doesn't use in anyone else's name. He just commands him. And the demons obey him. Because he had the authority of his own. See, an ambassador doesn't have his own authority. The authority is given. Christ has his own authority, and demons obey him. And so we see here that he's called the Son of the Most High God. We see he's called the Holy One of God. We see he's called the Prophet. This next one I'd like if you'd turn to Luke chapter 6. And this one is going to take a little bit of explanation, but he's called the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath. And in John chapter, sorry, in Luke chapter 6, verse 1, it says... On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said, why are, you, what, uh, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And with those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of, pe- of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and to give it to those with him. 
And he said to him, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I don't know how many of you have have actually had to uh, honor the Sabbath growing up. But the Sabbath is a very, very important day, especially in what's called Second Temple Judaism. Because here's an interesting thing that what what Jesus did. Why does he refer back to what David did? Well, he does that because Judaism had a major shift. What we read about in the Gospels, when we look at Judaism in the time of Christ, is very different than the Judaism that was before the Babylonian captivity. When you go through your Old Testament and you look at the, the Babylonians came in and they brought Israel into captivity. And many Jews fled and went to Egypt. And they developed what is referred to as Second Temple Judaism. Because when they came back into Israel, they had this whole rabbinical system. One of the major changes that you end up seeing it is how we get in a right state with God. Because we would know from a reading of the Bible that we get right with God by God's grace. But in Second Temple Judaism, it's by doing Torah, doing the law, obedience to God's word or to God's law. So they made major changes. Well, those changes end up coming into effect that they would have writings called the Talmud, where they would write down some of these laws. See, in the Old Testament, you have 300 and, and I'm trying to remember now, 314, 316 laws that are written in the Old Testament. There are tens of thousands when you start getting to the rabbinical law and the Talmud. I mean, really detailed laws. And, and they, you know, as, as being Jewish, we, we you end up seeing that Jewish people, you know, there's a reason they become lawyers. One, we're trained to debate. This is what you do as a family activity. As you sit over dinner, my father would sit there and give a topic, and we would all have to debate the topic at dinner. You know, so it's amazing. I can't imagine why four of my siblings are, or four, four people in my family are lawyers. I just can't. But the other thing is they're always looking for loopholes. You know, one of the interesting loopholes in the, in the Talmud is, uh, you know, you have a Sabbath. Now, on a Sabbath, there's a certain distance that if you walk just one step beyond this distance, you've broken the Sabbath. I mean, you have a, it's called a Sabbath day's walk. But that's okay because if on the day before, if you needed to go a certain distance, what you do is you just leave some bread at someone's house. And wherever you break bread, that's called home. So I could walk to your house, have some bread there. That makes that home. And now I could walk to another house and break bread and that and so on and so on. And I've not broken the Sabbath because every Sabbath is one Sabbath day's walk until my next home. It's amazing how they always found loopholes in this. Right. And so, but they had these rules that they would keep. I always found it interesting that I used to live in a, in a Jewish section of town, a very orthodox section. And one of the things that was funny was I remember looking out the window one day at the apartment and there was, it was, I mean, pouring rain. Now you're not supposed to start a fire on the Sabbath and therefore you can't start a car. Okay. For people that don't understand this, that spark plug is a, is a fire. Okay. So you can't start your car. You can't run a car because that's starting a fire. And so what, what you do is you walk to synagogue. That's why they're always in tight communities close to a synagogue. I thought it was hysterical one day. Well, probably in a bad way. But I, I was sitting there one day looking out the window, and I, I saw a family drive down this little alley that was by my house that, where I could see right out the window. And I watched them park their car, get out of the car in the pouring rain with their umbrellas, and walk to synagogue so they could be seen walking the last block. 
But you, you see, they were keeping the obedience of the law, kind of. They wanted to be seen by people. You know, it's interesting, in the Talmud it says that if, if a man is going to commit a sin, he should at least go to a foreign country where no one, where no one will know him so he doesn't bring a reproach upon God. Really, like God only sees this in Israel. He doesn't see what goes on in foreign countries. But the Sabbath is something that was so integral to this second temple Judaism that it was something that they had more laws on that than almost anything else on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And here is Jesus Christ claiming of himself. By the way, remember, what did he call himself? The son of man. So I mentioned that one already. And by the way, why is it he would refer himself as the son of man? Just a little historical note, but to think about in, because many Jehovah's Witnesses will point to you and show you and, and others that so much of the Gospels refer to Jesus Christ as a man, and that's their proof that he was a man and it developed over time that he was God. Well, the reason he had to emphasize his humanity so much is because no one questioned his deity. We know that from some of the Gnostic writings of Christ, where, where people would write about Christ in that first century. Gnosticism was this idea that anything physical, evil. Anything spiritual, good. So they didn't question his deity. They questioned his humanity. So he had to keep reminding them that he was a man. If you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, well, how else would he come? And that's the question to ask. Someone says, well, you know, he came in the flesh. Well, yeah, why would he have to emphasize that? Simple question. So he says he's the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming himself to be above the Sabbath. In Judaism, that's blasphemy. No one is above the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the thing that gets you in a right state with God. You obey the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't obey you. So what Jesus does is he goes back to bring them to historically to say, look, this is, this is what David did. You don't, you don't condemn David. And if you're not going to condemn David for what he did, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So look at what he's doing. He's saying, David, this most revered man, this most revered king, and he's saying, you won't condemn David. David's got nothing on me. The Sabbath obeys me. That would be blasphemy. In a Jewish mindset, we understand that he's claiming to be something greater than any man. He's claiming to be greater than the Sabbath. Something that God created or established on the seventh day of creation. If you were here yesterday, you heard a little bit about that. Let, let's move on. I want to try to see if we have, can give you three more. So we have Son of the Most High, the Holy One of God, the Prophet, the Lord of the Sabbath. If you look in Luke chapter 9, we're going to see the Chosen One. The Chosen One. This is very closely a, a, tied to the Anointed One which is our word for Christ. Christ actually wasn't his last name. I, I, I don't... It may, it, you may, as a Jewish kid, I always thought that was his last name. I did not know. Um, so it's actually a title. But in, in Luke chapter 9, he says, uh, it says, and this is at the, at the point of the transfiguration, and in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Which chosen one? Well, this actually brings us right back to Deuteronomy 18. 
This is again referencing that prophet. This chosen one that was promised. But what is God calling him? My son. This is not offspring. He's not saying that this is my son that's made in my image like Adam and Eve were made in my image. He's making a distinction between Jesus Christ and every other human being. Because he's saying this is this one particular person. This is my son, my chosen one. He's by doing that, he's distinguishing Jesus Christ from any other human being. He's distinguishing him and tying him back to what was what he promised of Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Giving a term that is connected to the Christ, the anointed one. So who is it that's making this claim now? This isn't some disciple some years after Christ died. This is God the Father stating it to the disciples before Christ died. So this isn't something that developed over time. You see, when people sit there and deny the deity of Christ, they don't look at all of these kind of references. But when you start counting all of these up, they mount up and become a lot. That's how you end up with 48% of the Gospels. We even see this at his crucifixion in Luke 23, verse 35. I'll just read that for you. But you see in, in verse 35, And the people watch, stood watching, but the rulers scoffing at him and said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now, understand this and don't read over this. When it comes to hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible, the biggest thing most people do is they just read. Don't read. Quote a friend of mine, Greg Hochul, never read a Bible verse. Read the chapter. The verses didn't appear until like 800 years after Christ, okay? In some ways they were very good, in other ways they were very bad. But when you read the scriptures, ask yourself what's going on. Put yourself in the mindset of what's happening. Here you have the Jewish leaders. Are they friendly toward Christ? Would they want to be making the claim that he is God? No, not at all. But what do they say? They're parroting what they were saying he was saying, weren't they? So did Jesus claim to be God? They certainly thought so. Oh, here he is on the cross. He saved other people. He could bring others back from the dead. Why doesn't he bring himself off that cross? If he thinks he's the Messiah, he's the Christ of God, the chosen one, why doesn't he save himself? You know, in the arrogance of the the rabbis, they didn't realize they were actually affirming the deity of Christ, the very thing they didn't want to affirm. They just didn't know God's plan. Did God affirm that Jesus was God? Yeah, three days later. When Jesus himself raises himself from the dead. You know what dead people do? Decay. That's what dead people do. They don't raise themselves from the dead. They're arguing if Jesus Christ could raise others from the dead, if he could save people from sickness, if he could really do these things because he's the Messiah, save himself. They're thinking of their own preservation and Christ is thinking about those he was going to die for. So he went, but he did save himself, didn't he? 
he rose himself from the dead three days later. But here, the interesting thing, just like the demons, here you have enemies of Christ affirming that he did claim he was God, that he did claim he was the Messiah, that he was this chosen one. It becomes very interesting when you make the arguments that way, especially if you have Jehovah's Witnesses, because you know what? The Jehovah's Witnesses are not prepared to answer that one. That the enemies of Christ refer to Christ as God. Another one that you'd be very familiar with is John chapter 1, verse 1. Right there, you probably can figure out which one it is. In the beginning was the Word. Well, what, how does John describe this Word, this title, the Word? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all the things that were made through Him and without Him was nothing, uh, was not anything that was made. Who was this word? Well, verse 14 says this word became flesh and was rejected by his people. John uses the title, the word. The idea of the word from John chapter 1 is tied to being God. He was not only with God, he was God. Now, sometimes if you have that knock on your door and the Jehovah Witness comes and you bring this verse out, they're going to say, oh, but you see, it says, it says, in their translation, the word was a God. See, there was no definite article. It doesn't say the word was the God. It's, it was just the word was God. So it's, it's little g God. And I go, oh, so you believe in multiple gods? No, 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 no. We don't. It, no, there's a difference between almighty God and the mighty God. But it sounds like two gods. I'm not sure there. Because, see, they're going to say that there's only one God. But they get themselves in a mess when, when they do this. You don't need the definite article there. The text makes it clear. Why? Because the text says that not only was he with God, he was there in the beginning with God. That would uh, mean that he had an existence before he was a man, by the way, which would make him uh, eternal. That's something only God can be. Uh, but he was with God, and he created everything. And they'll say, oh, no, no. See, God, what God did was God created Jesus. Okay, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll say he's Michael the Archangel that became Jesus, but that's a side note. But he created Jesus that then created everything. Well, you know, Isaiah disagrees because in Isaiah, God said, in, in Isaiah 44, 24, it says that God said he created all things alone with no one else. Well, which is it? Did God the Father create all, or did God create all things alone or did he do it through somebody? Can't both be true. This one, this passage is saying that the word created everything that was created and anything that was created was created by him and nothing was created outside of him. So he couldn't have created himself. So when you have the Jehovah Witness say he created all other things, he couldn't have created himself. And this passage says that there was nothing that was created apart from him. So the word is a reference to God. One last one, in, if you're in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 29, is the Lamb of God. The last one that we're going to look at, I'm going to read verse, starting at verse 29. So John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is him whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I did not, I did, I myself did not know him, but 
For this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he was sent to me to baptize with water. He said to me, he, he said to me, he opened uh, on, on, sorry, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and, and he, he says, and behold, at Jesus, he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, he's saying that he's seen this and this witness told him that this Jesus, who he's going to baptize, is the Son of God, the essence of God. It's a claim of deity, but he calls him the Lamb of God. And I want to end on this. Because this one is really what brings the importance of why we look at the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was God. And he was this special lamb. In Israel, as you probably are familiar, you'd have a sacrificial system. It was a bloody mess. Especially at Passover when you would have millions and millions of Jews coming into Jerusalem so that they could have their lambs slaughtered. And the priest would sit there and that's all they would do night or morning to night I'm saying day to day night to morning because it's they're actually their night starts in the evening but it, but we would end up having it where they'd start first thing and, and just be slaughtering lambs all day as sacrifices as a, as a picture of the one lamb that would come and be a one time sacrifice for all time that's this lamb how can one lamb be a remission of sin you see, if you go and you take a lamb, the lamb didn't sin, did it? Didn't do the thing. It didn't break any of God's law. You see, you can't really take a lamb to do your jail time. If you do something wrong, try it with the judge. Your Honor, I know I have to go to jail, I, uh, but, uh, you know, my little lamb would like to do the jail time for me. It's not going to work. You know what will work, by the way? And I know because I've done this. I had a, a guy I knew who I was discipling. He became a Christian. He was involved with drugs. And part of his way of working a plea bargain deal was he had to set up the dealer that they were actually looking for, uh, which was his, his dealer. Uh, and so they needed him to set this guy up. Well, it turns out that that guy was now in prison, the same prison he was going to be sentenced to. So a six-month sentence is more like a death sentence, isn't it? So he was made an offer. See, he had to do his jail time. I offered to do this jail time. There's three things that have to be required with that. I have to be innocent of the crime. I was. I have to be in a right state of mind. Well, at least the judge never met me before, so that was fine. She didn't know better. Um, the third was he had to accept it. He refused. You see, the thing is, another person can do a fine for another person. Your lamb can't. But in the Old Testament system, the lamb was always a picture of what was to come. This lamb of God that would come. But you know what? If you think about that scenario, if you do a crime and someone says, you know what? I'm a human being. I'm innocent of that crime. I will do your punishment. Well, how long would that punishment take when it's a crime against God? Eternity. 
When do you get done paying it? Never. So even if you are of, of the mindset that you think you're perfect, none of us are, just to set that straight, but if you think you are, usually if you think you are, I'll ask your parents or your spouse, and we could set that straight really quick. But if you were perfect, you can only do the jail time, the prison, the fine of one person. But John the Baptist is saying this lamb, he's the lamb that's going to pay the fine for all. For everyone that has their fine paid. Well, how do you do that? There's only one way that you can do that now. Not only does he have to be a man, but he has to be eternal. That's how you could pay an eternal fine. You have to be an eternal being. As an eternal being, God can pay the fine for everyone. And as we sung about earlier, all that could be laid upon him and we receive that reward. You see, this Lamb of God makes Jesus set apart. To be the Lamb of God, not only must He be a man, but He must be an eternal being, which means He must be God. This is literally the difference between heaven and hell. Whether we believe and trust not only that Christ is God, but what He did on that cross as a payment for our sin. That's what makes this doctrine so important. This is why so many false religions and so many people attack the deity of Jesus Christ. Because as Paul says, if Jesus Christ wasn't God, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we of all people are most pitied. Our eternal soul rests on the fact that Jesus Christ is Almighty God who died in our place and paid the fine that we owe, that we could be set free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We are amazed that you would do what you did, that you would die in our place, that you would come to earth and suffer what we owe. Lord, we ask that we would not take lightly what your scriptures teach and that we would not overlook the fact that you were a mighty God and you did what we cannot even begin to conceive of in your love for us that you died in our place. And I ask, Lord, that if there are any here today who do not know you, even though they may be in church all their life, even though they, they believe going to church makes them a Christian or, or if they, they think doing good things will make them a Christian, Lord, bring them to a point to realize that if we think that we can add to what you did on that cross, then we diminish what you did on that cross and we make light of the work that you did. Lord, may you do a work on anyone's heart here today who does not know you. And those of us who do know you, those of us who are believers, may we be in awe of what you did for us. May we be shocked that you would do that for us. And may we not take light the fact that you are an awesome and holy God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.